0: This episode of the Art of Manly's podcast is brought to you by Brilliant Earth. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry and the destination for creating your own custom engagement ring. Simply go to brilliantearth.com and pick from a variety of ethically sourced diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth's master jewelers bring to life iconic designs with exceptional craftsmanship and quality in every piece. Create your own custom ring or pick from any of their exclusive unique designs. And got a deal here. From November 11th to November 15th, you'll receive a complimentary surprise gift with the purchase of an engagement ring. To seed the terms for this special offer and shop all of Brilliant Earth's selections, just go to brilliantearth.com slash manliness. Again, that's brilliantearth.com slash manliness. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. I grew up in Edmond, Oklahoma, the suburb of Oklahoma City, and when I was a teenager back in the 90s, I started hearing about some church being run out of a guy's garage. Didn't give it much thought at the time, but fast forward 20 years later, and Life Church now has over 30 campuses across 10 states and is often ranked as the largest church in America. Today on the show, I talked to the guy who started this thing in a garage and has stood at the helm of its tremendous growth to glean his insights on leadership and strategy. His name is Craig Rochelle. he's the founder and head pastor at Life Church. We discuss Craig's philosophy on leadership and managing the growth of a large organization, how he balances innovation with stability, how an organization can stay nimble even as it gets bigger, how you have to relinquish control in order to get growth, and why leaders need to go out of their way to show people they're noticed and needed. We then discuss the personal side of leadership, including how to balance work and life, how to avoid letting administrative duties kill your creativity, and how to handle criticism. Whether you're a leader in a business or a nonprofit, you're going to find lots of actionable advice in the show. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Groeschel. That's G-R-O-E-S-C-H-E-L. Pastor Craig Groeschel, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Brett. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm honored to be with you.
0: So uh, I live in Oklahoma and Tulsa. And if you live in Oklahoma and you're driving around, you probably see cars with these LC stickers on their rear window which means Life Church, and that's the church you helped found and are the head pastor of. And it's been interesting because I've i been watching this grow for the past 20 plus years. I grew up in Edmond, and I remember first hearing about this when I was a teenager, about this church in a garage, and 20 plus years later, there's multiple campuses in multiple states. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about you know growing an organization managing the growth of that organization, leading people on a micro and macro level because I think you might have some insights there. So before we get to that, let's talk about the story of life church. Before you started life church, you were wanting to be just a minister to a traditional church, correct? Yes all right and you went up to the ordination board and you got turned down. what what happened there and how did that affect you?
1: Well, I was midway through seminary at the time, and I was a part of a tr- traditional denomination that I loved then and still love and value today. But I, I flunked the uh, the ordination part. They, I was the only guy. Basically, I didn't live up to what they wanted. They said my ideas were too wild. That I didn't have the normal gifts that most pastors had, and so they said I, they weren't sure I was called to ministry. And I, I Brett, I was beside myself, upset, disappointed, embarrassed, ashamed. I got in my little geo-prism and cried all the way home, mostly because I got rejected, but partly because I was rejected and driving a geo-prism. But it's, uh, I felt like my world fell apart. You know, this is what I thought I was supposed to do. And then I didn't live up to their standards. And to be totally fair, a year later, they did uh, approve me, but it was a long year of wondering, am I going to live up to what you know the standards that this ordaining board had for me. And I, I didn't make the cut the first time.
0: And so when did you decide to start this thing in your garage with Life Church?
1: Well, I, I was a part of a denomination. And so I asked them, could I start a church? And I was 27 at the time. And they probably wisely said no, meaning they wanted somebody with more experience than I had. I was just recently out of seminary. And so that was something really in our hearts. And And once that door shut, we started looking for other doors. And it was in a January of 96, we were planning on starting in our house. We had a handful of people, and I went out for a jog on a Thursday right before we started. Ran into a buddy out in his driveway who said, Hey, I've got this uh, two-car garage that's been kind of changed into a dance studio. Do you want to meet there? And so we moved into the little dance studio that had mirrors, which was great because it made the 40 people show up look like 80 people. And that's when we started January 7th in 1996 in the little garage and stayed there for a few weeks until we outgrew it and moved into a middle school. And how many campuses
0: are there are, are there now?
1: As of today, there's 31 we'll be launching the 32nd this month in uh, 10 different states.
0: That's crazy. So I mean, this is interesting with with church. The goal of church is to grow members' faith and spirituality. And that's a really abstract goal. It's like, how do you how do you measure success for that? So, how how do you measure success for that very abstract goal?
1: That's a great question. We we do want people to grow spiritually, but how do you determine if they're becoming more loving or more patient or more pure, it's really almost impossible to measure. So what we decided years ago to do is is kind of define the outcomes we hope to see and then ask ourselves, what are the inputs that contribute to those outcomes? What are the things that we can control that help produce the desires that we cannot control? And so for us, I mean, we measure, no exaggeration, Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things, most of which nobody would care about. But the things that we feel like do contribute to spiritual growth are kind of the front and center things we measure. Essentially, it's it's different forms of spiritual engagement. We feel like that people tend to grow spiritually when they're engaged, not just in Scripture, but when they're engaged in Scripture with community, that there's something that, happens that when they're together. So we measure the number of people that are in small groups. There's a lot that we measure about it. Like how long does it take to get someone in it? How long are they in it? Do the groups grow and multiply? A lot of sub-measurements, but that's the big one. We, uh, we measure engagement of people using their gifts. We believe that everyone is important, that everyone has a calling and should be making a difference. And so if they're in our church family, they should be doing something valuable in the church family. So how long does it take to get them involved using their gifts? We measure involvement in the community, meaning like Bread in Tulsa, there's, I think, seven different life churches. They all will have local community partners, and we want to get as many people involved serving in the community. We measure those who are giving when you have a generous heart. That's, an, that's likely some evidence of spiritual growth. And so those are just a few of the things that we look at and try to say what are the inputs that bring about the desired outcomes, and then we we measure those things that we feel like contribute to spiritual growth.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of testing that goes on too with this because you. There's think, a lot of testing.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's and yes, you know, in any kind of growing organization, chances are you're not going to get it right the first few times, and so we measure different things now than we did in the past, and yes, there'd be testing again and again,
0: over and over. So one thing that's made. Life Church so successful We've gotten to where it is today. It's been so innovative. I mean, you're one of the first churches that did online sermons. You've got the Bible app that you guys put out there. So it's there's a lot of innovation, but people also like stability and continuity too, especially with church. So do you think it's I mean, is that a challenge? Is that something a tension you have to navigate like continually be innovating while also trying to just keep doing what, you know, you're doing and getting better at it what you're already doing?
1: I think there's always a tension. So, you know, our church is a Christian church and we live with rich historic tradition. And and so there's certain things about our faith that should never, ever, ever change. But culture is changing all the time. So the way we engage with culture better be changing. And so like the YouVersion Bible app, we looked years ago and realized, you know, there's people that may believe in God, but they are not reading their Bibles. And so we decided to try to try to help solve that problem, and and we created an app, and we're lucky enough to take it to the apps for the very first day that apps came out. So day number one, our app was there, and as of today, it's grown to uh, we've given away 346 million free Bible apps. So that that's a case of taking what is traditional and constant and unchanging the Bible, but using an innovative way of delivery, and so it's we believe that the Bible's not just a book that is living, it's truth. And, and that's that's kind of a classic example of there's some things we need to keep the same, but how we deliver them, we want to be innovative. I, I do think in any kind of growing organization, we want to be innovative, but there's, there's no shame in being boring when boring works. Uh, there's a lot that we do that's just blocking and tackling day in, day out, week after week, month after month, year after year, there's are some things in application and execution that never, ever change, and there's no reason to change them. There are other things that we need to always be breaking, tweaking, improving, shaking, undoing, rebuilding. And I, th- I think it takes you know wisdom and a little bit of nuances in it to understand what are some of those things, where do we need to tweak and push, and uh, we don't always get it right, but we work hard to.
0: What sorts of things do you guys have kind of kept the same? Over the years, besides the the the, high, the vision, right, you know, but like I'm talking about on a day to day execution level,
1: you know, the game plan of how we engage people has never ever changed. And I'll give you a, maybe a little bit more than you want to know, but let's take two different churches in the same community, great churches. One of them's big, one of them's small. Why do people stay at a small church? The reason they stay there, generally speaking, is because they're needed. There's something they're doing that's valuable. They find they find value in making a difference. And the second reason is because they feel known. If they miss a weekend, someone says, hey, where were you? They've got relationships. They typically stay at a great small church because they're needed and known. Go to a large church in the same community. Why would they go to that church? Lots of different reasons. It's convenient. It's fun. It's big. There's a lot of activities for their kids. They're making a difference and such. Why would they leave the bigger church? Because they don't feel needed. There's professionals and you know more skilled volunteers doing something, and there's no place for them. And secondly, they miss three weeks and nobody notices. They don't feel known. So for us, needed and known, those things are massive. From day number one to 23 years in, what we want to do is we want to help people make a difference so they're needed. We want them in community. We want them known. That game plan has never, ever, ever changed. And I don't ever see it changing. It's the basics. We may tweak how we do it, but the what, the goal, is crystal clear. And I think any kind of business, nonprofit, there are going to be those things that don't get tired of focusing on the basics. There are certain things that always matter. And those are two things that always matter for us.
0: Yeah. And I think this idea of needed and known, I mean, this applies not just to a church, but also a business or any other organization. I think I've read like the one thing that employees want the most is appreciation. Like they'd rather have that than a raise. They just want So they just want to be needed and known. <laughs> exactly
1: and that, i mean that's why so often you know our team members are frustrated you know in our organizations where they leave they they don't typically leave bad organizations someone else has said this not my quote they don't leave bad organizations they leave bad managers they don't feel valued they don't feel appreciated and so i think th- those are those are valuable principles in any organization to help
0: them use their gifts and help them feel valued and cared for so another problem that organizations encounter as they get larger is that in the beginning, when you're, this is like whether you're a church or a business or a nonprofit or whatever, in the beginning, it's small, it's charismatic, it's agile, that you guys are moving fast, breaking things because you can. But as you get larger, there tends to be a calcification in the institution because you have, I mean, it's sort of the natural process, right? So how do you, as a large organization, stay agile, as you continue to grow and add more layers to the organization?
1: That's a really good question, really important, and we don't always get it right. We were one of the first churches to start going to multiple sites. And we made a lot of mistakes that growing organizations make. When you have a problem, you usually follow with a rule. (laughs) And before long, you get real heavy and suddenly you can't make decisions. You, it, what used to take a little time now takes a lot of people to uh, approve something and you start getting bogged down with bureaucracy and too many layers. So midway through, we recognized this was a problem. We fight like crazy to eliminate layers in our leadership organizational chart. I'm not a big fan of managers. I love doers. I don't want people that are just kind of overseeing. We want people engaged, making a difference. And then we just fight against rules. Again, this isn't my original idea, but somebody said basically like 2% of your people are always going to be idiots. Don't create rules for those 2%. Deal directly with those 2%. The rules we create will slow down the other 98%. And so we want to fight against unnecessary rules. In my organization, we're all about people. If you're not careful, the rules can be elevated above the love and care for people. We have to fight against that. And then just on a real practical standpoint, Brett, for me, I find a measurement of success is by looking at how deep into the organization you empower people to say yes. If yes decisions can only be made from the top, then the top is the limit to the progress of the organization. What we want to do is empower the right people, believe in the right people and push as many decisions deep into the organization as possible. That equips leaders, that helps them get better, that keeps your organization lean and agile. You don't need a lot of meetings. You don't need a lot of upward management to uh, move the ball forward. You push the decision-making power deep into the organization and again, we don't always get that right, but that's the goal that we're working toward.
0: And how do you train for that, right? I mean, you have to let go, but at the same time, in the beginning, you're letting leaders make decisions. How do you coach them or guide them as, they, as they're learning how to make those decisions?
1: Yeah, the way you ask the question is is wise. How do you coach and guide them? And that's exactly what you're doing. You know, How do you know if you can trust a person? Well, the the best way to find out if you can trust them is to trust them. And John Maxwell always said, if someone can do something 80% as well as you can, then delegate it to them. I'm actually getting more aggressive than than John is right now. I'm saying if I've got a team member that has momentum and potential, they can do it 50 or 60% as well. But they do have capacity to learn, I want to give it to them and, and trust them to grow. One of the biggest limiting factors of any organization is just our desire to control. And this is something I've had to work through. We have to work through it with our leaders. You know, the more we want to control, the more we limit the growth. What we have to do is we have to empower the right people, give away, give away, give away, give away, and and let them grow. The bottom line is they don't always get it right. It's often, you almost have to go through like a dip of production at times or a slight loss of quality while they're ramping up and they have a learning curve. And we have to be, we have to have a tolerance for a little bit of the dip to have the capacity for the upside. And that may be, you know we may not quite get it right for the next three months because we've got people with a learning curve, but those people with time, with coaching, with feedback can one day actually perform better than those who were doing it before if you select the right people, put them in the right systems and um, give them the right parameters and coaching. And that's just part of the growing organization. Uh, It's not easy. It can be messy. There can be you know, you can empower the wrong person, you have to backtrack, but you don't grow without risk and risking on people is one of the best risks you can take.
0: And was that hard for you to start letting go? I mean, you started this thing, it was sort of your baby, right? I mean, what point did you, what point with this thing did you just realize, like, I have to start letting go of this? Was it very early on? Was it middle, midway? And when you had to make, start letting go, was it really hard for you?
1: It was crazy hard, Brett. So, if you can go back in time, we were in our third location in a uh, bike factory. We had probably 400 or so people coming. I couldn't find kind of like what you would call your second person in charge, whatever that role would be. They, We were fragile. We were young. We didn't have the money to pay. People didn't know if we were going to make it or not. I couldn't find that kind of great leader to come along with me. And finally, one day, I did. There's a guy who was a district manager for Target, jerry hurley who's still with me today he agreed to take a massive pay cut and join our team and he was on for a few weeks when he had a, a very respectful conversation with me and i I'll, I'll never forget it but he he said something like you know you're good at this you're good at that you're a highly capable leader but he said your need for control is going to be the biggest limiting factor in this organization And then he just looked at me and he said, if you can trust that I've had experience in areas that you haven't yet and give me the freedom to lead and build, I believe I can help take this organization to the next level. And his words, they stung, but they freed me. And he was so right. So I started giving him more. And this guy who had, you know, here I was a 29, 30-year-old pastor who never led anything significant. And here was a guy who had managed multiple Target stores he came in and started building systems and training people. And I looked back and or started looking around and realized this is a, he's doing a lot better than I could do otherwise. It was about that time that I started to get obsessed with empowering people. What I don't want to do is I don't want to delegate tasks. If I delegate tasks, what I'm doing is I'm training people to do what they're told. I'm training them to be followers. What I want to learn to do is I want to delegate authority Instead of instead of creating followers by delegating authority, I'm creating leaders. I'm giving people the freedom to create. Now I am. It it would scare people to know how hands off I am and what I don't know. I look at the things that are most important. I'm always have a heart. uh, I'm I'm on the heartbeat of the culture. Are we aligned with mission? Are there there certain things that that only I can do? But there are hundreds and hundreds of things that people would be shocked. That I don't know anything about because I've empowered the right people. And and that's one of the principles we talk about is you you can have control or you can have growth, but you can't have both. And it's painful. Any entrepreneurial leader loves her work or loves his work that they're starting out with, but to take it to the next level, we have to empower people more than we ever imagined. And then we can our organizations can end up accomplishing more. Growing to heights in in places far beyond what we have the capacity
0: to do on our own. Yeah, I love that idea of delegating authority, not task. I think that's a good insight. Um, So you mentioned something interesting there in passing. You talked about like you were in a bike factory. So this, I think, this is interesting. So I think a lot of people when they're starting an organization or a business, they feel like it has to be perfect from the get go. But like with Life Church, I mean, you were in a garage. You were in, you were in a bike factory. I mean, a lot of the times, did you feel like you were just kind of flying by the seat of your pants doing this thing?
1: Always, and 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 even to the point now where we we want to guard against. We we always want to strive for excellence, but we don't want to. We don't want to, our goal can never be perfection. If it's perfection, what we're end up doing is is spending too much money in places that don't have a return. Uh, we're going to be too cautious and not trying things that are new. We're we're not going to empower people and, and let them grow. So we, we want excellence, but perfection can be the enemy of of progress. And uh, so yes, I mean to this day, <laughs> I still wake up and think how are we going to get it all done. <laughs> you know what's our what's our next move, and and that's kind of what makes the whole ride fun.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your Words from our sponsors: Money, power, a great pair of boots. You can have it all. How? Stop what you're doing, go to the nearest computer, open your internet browser, and type in the following, thursdayboots.com. That's T-H-U-R-S-D-A-Y-B-O-O-T-S.com. Pick out your favorite pair of beautiful handcrafted boots, add them to your cart, click checkout, fill out all the personal information and click purchase. It's that easy. Money, power, and a great pair of boots will all be yours. While results may vary, particularly regarding the money and power, you will definitely have a great pair of boots. This year, get a pair of boots that will last season after season. Get a pair of boots handcrafted with the highest quality materials and sold at honest prices. Get a pair at Thursday Boots. Head on over to thursdayboots.com. Again, money, power, and a great pair of boots are one click away at thursdayboots.com. Also by Saks Underwear. This holiday season, treat yourself the higher quality underwear with Saks Underwear, underwear that puts all other pairs to shame. Saks is the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. Their padded ballpark pouch has these internal mesh panels that keep everything in place. No more friction. You can move around comfortably. Their fabrics are super soft, breathable, and moisture-wicking, repelling BO and keeping you fresh. My go-to is the Kinetic Boxer Brief, Great for working out. They're great. Check them out. Kinetic Boxer Brief. Once you try Sax, you won't want to go back to wearing the old stuff. And I've got a special gift to get you started. Shop from anywhere on saxunderwear.com and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use the promo code AOM at checkout. Again, $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. Just go to Sax Underwear. That's S-A-X-X underwear.com. Promo code AOM at checkout and get five dollars off plus free shipping. Check out the kinetic boxer brief. And now back to the show. So uh, you're a leader of a big organization, multi- multiple locations, hundreds of employees, tons of moving parts. So, you know, much of the time you're acting like a CEO. But what's interesting about your job too is you're a pastor. You're, you have to create there's a creative aspect to it. You have to deliver a sermon, a message each week that has to be engaging and impart some message. So there's like a division between it sounds like administrative duties and, you know, creative duties. How do you how do you prevent administrative duties compromising your ability to access the more creative part of yourself? Does that make sense? That's a
1: yeah, it's a great question, and I actually appreciate the observation because that's something that a lot of people from the outside don't always notice. So it, it is it, it is it's almost like two different worlds. There's the creative content, which is a big, big part, and then there's running the organization, which is a really big part. They both have tremendous pressure. And if, if I'm not careful or others in my role aren't careful, one of them will squeeze out the other and both of them have to happen. So for me, I'll, I'll be real practical with you. I fight like crazy against being in too many meetings because so often in our organizations, meetings are not as productive as they need to be. So I want to limit the number of meetings. I want to limit the time in meetings. I want to make sure that the meetings that I'm in need decision-making and they're not just informative because there's other ways to get information. So I only have one fixed meeting a week on my calendar. The second thing is, you know, prioritizing is, is crucial for all of us. We all have more to do than we have time to do it. And so I put artificial deadlines on just about everything that I do. A lot of people talk about, you know, what do you do early in the day that makes you successful? I like to talk about what I do later in the day. To make me successful. And that is creating a deadline, which is a quitting time ahead of time. Like today, I will leave the office at 345, like I did yesterday, and I'll go to the gym. And that artificial deadline, which isn't real, one I just put there, what it does is it makes me more focused during the day. I have to delegate things that I probably would do otherwise. I have to say no to some things that I would probably normally do. And I have to make faster decisions. The same is true with a sermon. My sermon is due in my mind at noon on Wednesday, every single week. In the history of our church, I've never missed that deadline, although the deadline is only mine. If I didn't have that deadline, I'd work into Wednesday afternoon, into Thursday. I have to clear that off my plate so I can do the administrative part, because until the sermon is, until I feel that relief of completion, I can't focus on the rest. I need half a day on Wednesday and all day on Thursday to focus on the administrative part, and so the artificial deadline creates the boundary that frees me up to do the rest of it. We all have to do that. They're, you know, an entrepreneur, a startup business leader. They're going to be so much. They're doing sales. They're doing systems. They're trying to create uh, budgets. They're trying to find an office space. And so, literally saying, I've got this much time for certain projects. It, it, it. You become more efficient. If you, Brett, were going on vacation on a Wednesday somehow you'd get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday's worth of work done by Wednesday. It makes you better. That's kind of what I try to do, is, is put tight boundaries, constraints that help me be creative, more efficient, faster.
0: Yeah. It reminds me, I think Paul Graham, the guy who does Y Combinator. He has this essay about a, a maker schedule and a manager schedule. Like the makers, like the creative schedule. And the manager schedule, like the administrative schedule. And he says, You gotta you can't let the two bleed together or else you'll do both poorly. So you have to kind of keep them separate. I like that. So it sounds like what sounds like what you're doing. So you've talked about that you've been a workaholic in the past. How did you get a I mean, so it sounds like one thing you've done to get a handle on that is setting tight deadlines for yourself. Is there anything else you've done to get a manage on pushing yourself too hard?
1: I think, you know, years ago, I had some people come to me and say, we feel like you have a problem. And they made me go to counseling for being a workaholic. And I didn't get a thing out of it. I thought they were lazy. I thought I cared more than they did. I thought they were all stupid. And so I wasn't prepared for it. A few years went by and I realized that they were right. I actually needed help. And so the second time I went to counseling for it, I actually did get get more out of it. The uh, My counselor told me, he said he, he really stung me. He said, the reason you work so hard is two reasons. One is, is you have a ton of pride. And the other one is because you're not, you're, you're, you're not performing as a strong leader right now. And those words that was like kind of punched me in the gut. You know, he said, "You, you think you're the only one that can do things. You're prideful. And the second one was, you know, you're not trusting and empowering other people. And that was kind of in the season where our church was stuck and Jerry was coming on and I started, started to empower people. Uh, some things for me that I, I am good at is I'm really good at guarding my, my day off. Fridays, I rarely will give those up, and I'm good at those. The downside, and to, just to be real transparent with you, is I start really, really early. And so I can bury and kind of hide some of my workaholic tendencies when others may not necessarily see it because I, I can put in a long day before a lot of people ever get in. So if you ask my wife, am I fully functioning and always healthy? She'd probably giggle a little bit, laugh at you and say, no. Would she say that I do prioritize the family and um, take vacation time and block off the days? She would say, yes, I do. But do I get it right all the time? No, I'm still very dysfunctional and um, still have lots of problems and and still can slip back into real long and, and unhealthy work binges. So it's a work in progress.
0: It's a work in progress, probably like you, right? Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Of course. So another challenge that a leader of a large organization faces, you know, is when you first started out as a minister, you know, you were able to minister one on one with people on a regular basis. But now that you're a leader of a church with tens of thousands of members, you know, for time reasons, even security reasons, you know, you can't do much one on one ministering with people as you did in the early days. So, you know, being a leader of a large organization, whether it's at a corporation or something else can be lonely and isolated. So how do you keep from feeling cordoned off from the rank and file of your church? Yeah, I'll I'll answer that
1: in two different ways. One thing is any type of success in leadership tends to lead toward isolation, unless you intentionally fight against that drift. And so, just on the relational end, it's incredibly important to work really, really hard to be intentional about keeping relationships intimate and strong. You would know this just as your podcast becomes more successful, as you as you grow in your business, people start to tell you more what you want to hear, and that's dangerous. And so we have to work really hard to keep honesty and closeness in our relationships. So that's one angle. The other end of it is just kind of like the the pastoral end as. As the church grows, I obviously can't do everything that I did before. But a friend of mine, Andy Stanley, has a teaching. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for all. And I really value doing that. There are, there are so many things that I would love to do for 100 people that I can't, but I 100% do it for one. Almost every weekend at church, there's someone that's sick that you know knows someone who asks, and we go out and we, we pray for someone there's a teenager that's going through a difficult time and we stop and we pray for that one. And so we'll set up those kind of meetings or we'll go do a hospital visit or whatever. And so it's not that I don't do those things. In fact, I do, I still do a lot of them. I just can't do it for all the people. And doing some of that's incredibly important to me because if, if I don't, then it, it kind of robs me of the purity of the whole reason we started this. And so it still works it's, there are a lot of things I can't do that I I, I wish I could do just from the, this, um, sheer scope of the size of it, but it, it, I'm not going to let that keep me from the joys of doing a few things that really do, um, matter and move the needle on personal fulfillment.
0: And, and do I imagine you set like set aside time on your calendar for that? Like there's a time where you like, that's what you go do.
1: I do. Yeah. So like when I'm at church, like the, my, my office hours, they're, they're so jammed. It's, hard to describe and hard for most people to understand. There's not much margin in the producing hours, but on the weekends, I've got 30 minutes between every service. And so I'll pack that full of say hi and, and, um, ministering to people in different ways we can. So I'm already out and kind of like add-ons really work well.
0: So another part of being a leader is receiving criticism, but I think people like ministers, pastors, priests, like they can never do anything right, right? Sermons are either too hard or too soft, or you said you shouldn't have said X, or you should have said Y. How do you deal with the onslaught of feedback and criticism that you might receive because of your position? I think,
1: you know, anybody in leadership and not just, you know, coaches and, you you know, you you on your podcast, you certainly get it as well. And especially in the age of social media, people have access to criticize faster. And so it it is there. On one hand, we have to always be open to learn from it. And there have been multiple times where critics have been right or somewhat right. And I've had to actually humble myself and say, that is a really, really fair point. And it's still humbling how often I have to do that. So I I need to make sure that I don't write off all criticism as bad criticism. I need to ask myself, is there any truth to it? A lot of times it just is uninformed criticism. It's by people that are hurting and and they're going to take shots at anyone they can. For me, I'm not going to say that it never bothers me It it sometimes does, but the more on my game I am, in other words, the more I'm obsessed with the mission, the easier it is to tolerate some of the unjustified criticism. And so it helps me to be focused, to be driven, to, to really be heads down doing what I know matters. And then I can kind of just take it as part of the game. It's when I'm off my game, when I'm kind of maybe feeling sorry for myself or have my eye a little bit off the real target, that it can get under my skin and such. At that point, I just have a, I, I have a no response rule. Unless it's someone that I know, if it's just a, a, a social media, I just let it go. I never, I'm never, i not going to engage with it. I'm not going to feed that and give them the satisfaction knowing that I saw it. And so I'm just going to keep my head down and, and and try to keep going.
0: Yeah, I think uh, Dwight Eisenhower had this rule. It says, don't deal with personalities or don't deal in personalities. Sort of it's like no response rule to personal attacks. So that idea of like, how do you figuring out which criticism you should pay attention to and which one you should ignore? Like, How do you make that decision?
1: I would say for one thing, context matters. You know, there are some people that, that like, if, if someone that really loves me is pointing something out, I'm going to listen to that a lot more than just some random stranger who's tweeting and in all caps with misspelled words at me, you know, And also, if I hear something a lot, there are some categories of criticism where people are, they're always going to hate megachurch pastors or whatever. So I'm not going to let that raise a flag. But if it's something else that, you know, like for, if we go back years ago, I heard a lot of people in the church say, hey, you're being too crude in your humor um, when you're preaching. And I thought, you know, you guys are just, you don't have a good sense of humor, but I, I heard it enough that it started to, kind of raised my awareness. And then, uh, one week my daughter was old enough to come into kind of big church and I was about to tell a joke, And I thought I actually wouldn't want her to hear that. And so suddenly kind of the, the clouds lifted and I realized, okay, all these people were right. I really need to, I need to, I need to be a little cleaner in, in that and in more God honoring in the way I, I would use humor. And so uh, I think it's, you know, who does it tends to matter. And then if you hear it Enough for more than one person, or from a lot of people, then it might be time to say yeah, they might they might have something I should pay attention to.
0: Let's talk about leading volunteers. So you have you know paid staff on hand, but a lot of the day to day stuff at your church is done by volunteers. Uh, how do you how do you keep these people motivated and reliable for work? You know, even though because they, they're not obligated to work, they're not getting a paycheck. You know, so they decide not to show up. Right They're nothing's really going to happen. So how do you keep volunteers motivated and uh, to keep working?
1: You know, in any in any type of relationship with volunteers or with with staff, they they want to know two things. They want to know that we notice and that we care. And so anytime we can say I notice what you're doing, uh, it really matters and help them feel that, that goes a long, long way. And and letting them know that you value what they do matters. In, in motivating and appreciating people, one thing that I always try to say is, is that appreciate more than you think you should. So what you want to do is you want to kind of almost be like uncomfortable, like I've done enough now. Appreciate more than you think you should, then double it. Whenever you hit that point where you're starting to feel uncomfortable, realize you're not even halfway there yet. And so with volunteers, it's going to be everything from... Thank you notes, thank you notes, thank you notes, thank you notes. I'm a big believer in pen to paper and send it in the mail the old-fashioned way and say thank you. A slightly lazier yet still semi-effective way is texting, phone calls, sharing stories, letting them in on inside information, just being kind of on the inside is motivating. Ultimately, connecting what they do to a higher calling really matters. Then we kind of move from motivating to inspiring motivating implies we're having to push them. Inspiring is helping it come from within, from in spirit, inspire. And so if we can help pull out that desire to use our gifts to contribute to something greater, that really matters. At the end of the day, we want to help connect what they do with making a real difference. And then there's a real sense of satisfaction. We noticed, we care, and what they do matters. And um, people will line up to be a part of something is bigger than themselves when um, when others care, and together we get to do something significant, significant and special.
0: Right, it all goes back to needed and noticed. Need it right, need and known. You're right. Need it known. So another job as a leader is providing a vision for your organization. How far advanced do you plan for? organization you lead? Is it five years, 10 years, even longer? Yeah. So I, I used to kind of set like five-year
1: goals and my, my philosophy has really changed quite a bit. The, uh, I think it's because the world has changed so much. Now the pace of change is becoming more rapid every single day. So my ability to predict or project five years in the future is is so much smaller than, than it was in the past. And in fact, what I found was I, I generally would undershoot what was possible and underplan what we were able to do. So now, instead of projecting five years out in the future, what we're, we're really passionate about doing is creating a lot of margin now for opportunities that we cannot predict. I, I don't know what new technology is going to be available in five years. I don't know what new team members I'm going to have and i'm not honestly a big believer in outcome goals I'll, I'll give you a few like in my world what multi-site pastors will say is we want to start 20 churches by the year 2020 i actually think that's a really stupid goal because if you're going to start 20 you might start 8 of them that, that were the wrong ones you you went too soon you went too early you didn't have the team you didn't have the money you didn't have the right places You weren't weren't developed enough in your philosophy. You didn't have the structure. And so you let a goal drive you to do something stupid. I don't want to ever have a numerical goal drive me to something unwise or premature. So instead of saying, I want to do 20 by 2020, I want to do the right number the next year. I might stretch myself some saying, you know, we were planning on three. Let's try for four. But I don't want to do four if it's not right. What I do want to do is I want to have the right inputs that will lead to the right outcome, meaning, okay, we need to be developing leaders. If we're going to start four campuses next year, how many leaders do we need? Then let's start there with the leaders. If we're going to pay cash for the buildings, how much money do we need to raise and save ahead of time? If we're going to grow from 31 locations to 37, do we need a structural change? Let's change the structure today before it breaks so that we can sustain the growth in the future. So rather than looking way out in the distance and trying to project when we usually get it wrong, what I want to do is stay real current. And I also want to prepare and plan knowing that there are opportunities that are going to come. There may be a piece of land that I didn't see was coming. There might be three staff members we want to hire that we didn't know were going to be available. There may be a new technology that we want to leverage and we didn't see that technology coming. So I want to have Margin financially. I want to have margin with my people. I want to have personal capacity margin to take something else on. And so instead of planning, we're more uh, planning for something specific. We're planning for something that we don't know what it is, and then we're going to seize those opportunities when they come. Maybe a non-traditional, may not work in every business, probably wouldn't, but it, it served us well. And I'm pretty passionate about continuing to lead that way, at least for now.
0: So yeah, it sounds like you're being conservative in the short term, right? You might not spend as much as you maybe could so that you could be aggressive when the opportunity arises because you have that extra capital, whether it's human or financial.
1: I think, yeah, I think growing at the right pace is really, really Important. You can, um, my gosh, you can grow too fast and end up compromising your ability to do something significant later. At the same time, you can be uh, too cautious, and in my world, we call that you know bearing your talents and not, uh, and, and that's not something um, that's looked favorably upon. So we want to be, we want to be wise. We want to be strategic. But the the thing to remember is now, with as fast as the world is changing there are opportunities that are coming that none of us could have predicted. I can guarantee you 10 years ago, you aren't projecting to have a podcast that's doing what it's doing now. It's It's a different category that didn't exist. And so you're able to seize it two years from now that your podcast might evolve into something that's not even on the radar yet. You can't plan for it, but you can be prepared for that opportunity that's coming, whatever it is, and jump on it when it's there.
0: Well, Craig, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your insights on leadership and whatnot?
1: I have a a leadership podcast. It's just called the Craig Rush Show Leadership Podcast. And uh, we drop at least one podcast every month, unlike you that drop them all the time because you're much better at getting out content faster than I am.
0: Well, I'm also not a pastor, so (laughs) You're, you're a busy man. Well, hey, Craig, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Hey, thanks
1: so much for having me. I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thanks for providing valuable content for all of us.
0: My guest today was Craig Groeschel. He's the head pastor at Life Church. You can listen to his podcast and leadership. Just search Craig Groeschel Leadership Podcast, or you can go to life.church slash leadership podcast to listen to it there. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash That's G-R-O-E-S-C-H-E-L, We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.